And so I ask you to go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. That is pretty easy to find. It's right there in the beginning. It's the first book of the Bible. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis. Right? The first book of 66 books that make up the holy and sacred scriptures. Preserved and given to us by our Heavenly Father. He preserved them and He has given them to us. Isn't that something? You know, these books were written by, uh, over a long period of time by many different authors. And, and here we have them given to us. Genesis, the title of this book, is a title reflective of its content. In the beginning. It is a book about the beginning. It is here that we are told and taught things that we wouldn't otherwise know. We learn of the doctrine of God, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of redemption, the doctrine of creation, or I've already said that one, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of grace, on and on we could go. Throughout this book, we learn of these great doctrines, and we know that the human race cries out for answers, right? And we, we hear it, like as we talk to our friends and family members, right? As we, I know when I was uh, in, in a bigger city, I would spend a lot of my time in the coffee shop just studying and doing my work was in coffee shop. That was my office, okay? And so I would get in lots of discussions with people who were unbelievers, and it was clear that humanity has lots of questions, and they cry out for answers, answers to life's major questions, questions like, how did this world begin? Why is this world like it is? Who is going to help us fix this mess? What does the future hold for us? And here in the beginning, here in Genesis, God answers these questions. God clearly articulates answers to the questions we have about design. God clearly articulates the questions to the answers that that we have about gender that we have about the purpose of humanity. He he answers questions that we ask related to the mess and trouble we're in. Right here in the Genesis account, God answers questions about the source of evil and suffering. He answers questions about our existence and our future existence, and on and on and on. Praise God for this book, right? Praise God that He has preserved this word for us, because we need it, don't we? We need it. We need this kind of direction. Moses writes, he's the author, and he writes in the context of a culture, if you could imagine this, I think you can, uh, but he writes in the context of a culture that ignored God. And so he writes, in the, he, he writes to the people of Israel to correct the record of paganism and idolatry. He, he, he writes to remind the nation Israel that the same God that formed the earth and everything in it is the same God that formed them as a nation. And that's something. Israel needed a book like this. A book that would lay the foundation for the good law of God. A book that they could reference and read and study. A book that 
would put on display the sovereign power of their God in forming, creating, and redeeming all things, including them. We see in the first chapter that God did not create humans as an afterthought, but instead as the pinnacle of His creation set apart to reflect Him as His image bearers. In this book, I pray and believe that we will learn more about our God, that we will learn more about. As we study and go through this book, it is my prayer and hope that that we will learn more about the depths of His character, the meaning and purpose of His design, that we will learn more about His gracious, loving commitment to our redemption. I pray that as we study, we will come to stand more in awe of who He is. That as we study, that we will become more, more broken and humbled by His mercy and grace. I think that will happen. As we, as we press in here and we get a, a more a clear picture of who God is and then who we are, we will, I think, be broken and humbled by those truths. And we will be struck, I think, struck that it is an odd thing that in His ascendancy and majesty that He would choose to come after us with so much zeal and passion and purpose. That's what we see happening in this text. He comes after humanity. He chases them down even though they let Him down. And and we will see by chapter 3, not very far into the story, we see by chapter 3 that we are fatally flawed. And He promises and executes a plan to reverse that fatality. And we see in studying... This morning, chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 3, that God, the sovereign, uh, clearly has the power and authority to recreate, to redeem, and transform His creation so that we can, right, once again fully reflect His image and rule according to His good purposes. That's what we want. That's what we were created to do. So let us take note of this creating... (laughs) Redemptive power that is put on display as you follow along as I read, uh, beginning in Genesis 1, verse 1, to Genesis 2, verse 3. All right, we're going to read the whole thing. And I pray that as we read, that the Spirit would work and open our eyes and our hearts. We just together, right? Follow as I read. Just follow with me. Let, don't read ahead. Just read with me. Quietly to yourselves. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Verse 6. Then God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters, separating the water from the water. 
So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse sky. Evening came, then morning the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gatherings of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed and according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed and according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and evening came, and then morning the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and they will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky. To provide light on the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed, God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from dark darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and everything living and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came, and then morning, the fifth day. Are you getting excited yet? Okay. And then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, and then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the sur surface of the entire earth, and I've given you every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. And the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, 
And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Should I read it again? Naturalism, pantheism, polytheism, deny, you add your own ism, right? All of it denies what we just read. The paganism of Moses and the people of Israel's culture denies what we just read. In polytheism, the gods and demons govern what goes on in the world. Some gods are good, some are bad. Some protect, some punish. In pantheism, we have Hinduism, Buddhism, and New Age culture. In these systems of belief, God is in everything and in everyone. So in the pantheism, He is in the energy that is around the room. He's in the chair, right, in pantheism. In naturalism, we have atheism, agnosticism, and existentialism. In these systems of belief, that is, in naturalism, in these systems of belief, the material world is all that exists. God and spirituality is a crutch made by people to help them feel better about themselves. And all truth is proven, must be proven in naturalism. It must be proven and is proven scientifically. And then from there, Uh, In naturalism, there is no objective value or moral standards. In fact, moral standards, morals, and values are are simply determined by the culture. Values and morals are relative to whatever the culture decides, or uh, those values and morals are decided by whoever has the most power. (laughs) Those decided for you. This moral relativism isn't new as we think about it. It's guided our country and, and many others in decisions regarding uh, slavery, for example. Think of how in the beginning of our nation's history, how we treated the black man, right? Think of how that guided us. Did we hear what God's Word had to say and listen there? No, it was a moral relativism. It, and, and this moral relativism it guides us today in our decisions. Right? Here we are living in a culture that embraces, can you believe it, Roe v. Wade. Regarding human infants, right? See how it, right? We see how this moral relativism takes shape. If, if, if the culture embraces the killing of infants, then according to naturalism, okay, which is a religion, by the way, or it manifests itself in several different types of religious beliefs and ideologies, okay? Some people say, right, when you talk to them, at least in my coffee shop conversations or conversations with unbelievers, you get to talking, oh, I'm not religious. Oh, yes, you are. Very religious. You're committed in your naturalistic philosophy to a very philosophical system of belief known as naturalism. And so if the culture embraces the killing of infants, then according to naturalism, that is the moral value and standard of that day. And it's okay. Because in naturalism, the value of human life is subject to what people think. And here, I want to draw our attention. Why am I bringing this up? Because that ties back into Genesis 1. 
right? Where, where in all these other religions, we're not trying to figure out what to think about God's law or life or our existence because it has been predetermined, as we see in Genesis 1, it has been predetermined in the mind of God, right? Therefore, culture isn't left to decide and wonder what to think about human life or any other moral value for that matter. And so questions, where did we come from and what is our purpose? That is an important question. It's a question that lots are asking and it's of first order importance, okay? And it is laid out and answered for us in Genesis chapter 1. It's huge. God is the author of creation, the subject of this first sentence, right? A little grammar lesson. Who's the subject? You see it there. You underline the subject. You guys do that ever? Underline the subject. Well, it's God, right? God is the author here, and in this chapter alone, he's referred to 35 times. The account is about him. The entire book points to him, and it's here in this first chapter, and this is really important, that we come to understand that our very existence is owed to him. That is a thrust of Genesis 1, <laughs> right? As we read it, we come to go, oh, he's the creator, he's the sustainer of life. If that is in fact true, then I owe everything to him. I must subject myself to him and to him alone, right? Right? And so in that, we, in our first point, if you're taking notes on the back of your bulletin, you see that in that, that's why we're saying that the sovereign power, creation reveals to us the sovereign power of God. Moses writes Genesis in a world that does not get this, in a world that is filled with false gods, societies and culture all around God's chosen people bowed in allegiance to animals, sun, moon, stars. And right here, Moses lays the foundation, making it clear that any type of worship other than the worship of the Creator doesn't make sense. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of a life. You hear that? That is true today. If God and His sovereign power made life, and God made time, and God made the weather, and God made your body, and God made the sun, and God made the moon, and God made the stars, then God controls all things. And they are subject to Him. Why bother worshiping the created things? They have no power. They cannot hear me. They cannot hear you when you speak. They do not know what you need. And this is not only a reminder of what a waste of time it is to worship anything other than the Creator God, but it is also a reminder for Israel that they had no reason to fear all those entrenched in worship of false gods. Right? They had no reason to fear all those who would mock them and enslave them and want to destroy them. Because these groups that surrounded them, these nations, they worshiped gods that couldn't do anything to help them. They weren't gods at all. They can't feed them, they can't clothe them, and they could never be there for them. Hmm. Man, I think Genesis 1 certainly is written in part to say to the nation of Israel, man, look, you've got it made. Look at your God. He's the only one true God. And so Moses could look at the people of Israel and ask, 
So what is the appeal? What is the appeal? What's the appeal? Look around at your culture, nation of Israel. <laughs> Look at your society. Why are you enticed so much by their false gods and acts of worship, right? What's the appeal? Right? And we could ask ourselves the same thing. Couldn't we? Because we can say, as we look at our God, we can say, we, on the other hand, serve a God that invites us to consider the birds of the sky. This is Jesus talking in Matthew 6, 26. He invites us to consider the birds of the sky and take note. Okay. Jesus is writing there in Matthew 6 and speaking. You could say that that chapter right there is a cure for anxiety. How many experience anxiety ever? Okay, so we got about six people to tell the truth. Right? We, we experience anxiety. And don't you imagine that in Genesis 1, I imagine that the nation of Israel that this is being written for, they have experienced some anxiety. And think of what he's saying here. Jesus, then in Matthew 6, says, Consider the birds of the sky and take note that they don't sow or reap or gather into barns. So he's, he's focusing on what he, his creation. Hey, your heavenly Father, he feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Observe how the wild flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendors was adorned like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown in the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? <laughs> in this passage, this account here in Genesis 1 on God's creation is a call to faith, I actually think much like the call to faith that Jesus is giving there in Genesis 6. Calling us to look at there in Genesis 1, calling the nation of Israel, and now even us to look at, look at God's order and design and His power over creation. It's a call to faith, right? A call to seek first the kingdom of God and trust in His provision. You see, the people of Israel could look at the paganism and godlessness that surrounded them. And so we, too, can look at the godlessness that surrounds us and hear God say to us in Christ right now, right, as we think of the anxieties we, we face. Now, I know some of you might care just a little bit about what's going to happen this Tuesday, right? Right? Right, and everybody's on different, a lot of people are on different sides of that and real stirred up about that. And both sides are saying, right, if, if our guy doesn't win, then everything's going to, in a handbasket, right? And so we say no. No, because we can say, here we are, for those of us who are here in Christ, we can look at Genesis 1 and we can be reminded that it is God that holds it all together. And if he is for us, no one can stand against us, as Romans 8.31 says. And the creation reveals this truth to us, doesn't it? It reveals the sovereign power of God that we, and to that sovereign power, we have one response, church. And Genesis 1 calls that response out of us, and that is that we say, we get it, 
and we align ourselves with you. And we are, we are, we are going to transfer our allegiance off of self, off to anything in this life, off to any created thing. We are going to transfer our allegiance off of that and on to you, the only wise God. In fact, we believe as we look at this account, you made it really clear it's the only sensible thing to do. But it's also the only glorious and satisfying posture for us to take. So we do it, Lord. We bow ourselves to you and you alone. Right? It's a call to worship. Genesis 1 is a call to worship. In this account, we also see the creation is the foundation for the law creation account is the foundation for the law. The law is good like the creation is good. In the first day of creation, God made light and he saw that the light was good. And again and again throughout Genesis 1, God would create and then he, and then he would evaluate his creation, right? And he'd say it's good. At the end of the sixth day, he says it's very good indeed. I love that. Right after he made you and I. And so we say creation is the foundation for the law. For example, the law states, have no other gods besides me. And here in chapter 1, we see, and we've already said it to some degree, but here in chapter 1 of Genesis, we see why we shouldn't have any other gods besides him. So again, the creation is the foundation, right, for the law. So he's telling us, don't have other gods besides me. And we can see why this command is actually very gracious as he's rescuing us from, from putting in front of us a God that can't do anything for us because it's no God at all. You see that? And so what we see right away, just taking one command and evaluating against his created order and purpose and design, what we see very quickly is that God, thankfully, is rescuing us from stupidity, right? You say, well, that's harsh. Well, actually, we could say, it's, well, it's the noetic view of sin is what he's rescuing us from. You say, well, what's that? Well, theologians call it that sin makes us stupid, Okay. So stupidity, that's a theological term, it's a biblical term. Read Proverbs. If God is the maker, creator, sustainer, if he is before all things and above all things and he made all things, then how foolish and reckless and hopeless our lives would be if we seek to select gods that have been created as opposed to give our allegiance to the God who creates. In verse 9 through 13, just to, to draw this example out a little bit further, we see there in Genesis 1, we see in that section, we see that it, it, it is God who provides fertility to the earth, okay? And this is very significant as we think back to the people of Israel and what they're, they're going through, okay? Because God is saying, I'm the one that provides fertility to the earth. Alan Ross says this decree for fertility stands in bold relief to the ancient mythologies. Here's why. In Canaan, for example, the religious myth claimed that Baal, you've heard of Baal, we'll read more about Baal as we work our way through Genesis, right? But they believed that Baal could produce fertility. At the end of the year, Baal died, which explained why the crop died. And then Baal was carried away to the abyss. 
The abyss was the domain of Prince Sea or the ocean. But his spring, Baal's spring uh, goddess, goddess would rescue him and he would reappear to ensure the crops grow in the new year. And this process accounted also for the change of seasons. And Ross says, most of the ancient religions had such rituals designed to induce the gods to produce crops and fruit and even life. And so here in Genesis, we have a contrast, right? In contrast to corrupt accounts of fertility among the nations that the people of God, that surrounded the people of God, the text of, of Genesis here simply but powerfully reports that God gathered the seas together and He, that is, God decreed that the fertile earth produce vegetation. So fertility then is a self-perpetuating process by God, a created capacity from the true Lord of life. There is no God's seed, just the seas that God controls. Hear it? That's good. Vegetation does not result from some pagan god's springtime ascendancy through a depraved ritual. It results from the majestic word of the sovereign Lord of creation. Have no other gods besides me. This command protects us from such foolishness as this. We see here that this command is so gracious. What a beautiful thing that the foundation of God's law for us is rooted in His design. Meaning, He selects His laws, not like your parents tend to do. Right? You say, what are you talking about? Well, I don't know, me as a parent, I'm like, just for my own convenience sake, <laughs> I might say, don't do that. What do you mean? I thought I could read my Bible, Dad. No, well, what do you mean? I well, I guess you can do that. I don't know. You know. I mean, sometimes we're just kind of on a, we just kind of arbitrarily select rules, right? That's not good parenting. I'm not promoting that, but I'm just, you know, just making up rules. God does not function like this. He does not just arbitrarily select rules from wherever, like some ruthless king or poor parent. But his rules, his law, his commands are most intimately linked to the core of who we are. They are linked to how he fashioned us by his own hand. Right? The law and what he asks from us is rooted. And that, that is such a gracious thing. It is rooted in how he fashioned us. And he fashioned us according to his word. Right? Physically. He fashioned us for certain purposes and for certain things. Spiritually, He's fashioned us. And creation reveals the redemptive power of God's Word. How did God create? As we see it, we just read it. How did God create? With His powerful and authoritative Word. Did you, did you sense that as we were reading through it? It's just like this crescendoing. I should have practiced a lot more reading it because it's just, you just want to like, I mean, Quint, we should have had you playing in the background or something, like got on the Nord or whatever, but we just, next time, man, because we just need to have that going. 
We got to feel the, the power of this, this, the powerful, authoritative word as we, we listen that it is God's word, right? That we obey, and it is God's word that also gives us life, right? That's why we often say here we, we walk in glad obedience to God. And so when we read through Genesis, we're listening and we're hearing these creating and recreating and, and these transforming words, the, these redemptive words repeated again and again. And I would encourage you to this week to do as I did and write those words down and write them down as many times as they are repeated, and as you read Genesis 1 in the account there, and take note of the repetition that God said, God said, hear the redemptive power of God's word, God said, God said, God said, God said, God said. Hear the redemptive, redemptive power of God's word as it says, God saw, God saw, God saw, God saw, God called, God called, God called, God called. God called. God separated. God separated. God separated. God separated. God separated. See it through there. God made. God made. God made. God made. God placed. God placed. God placed. God placed. God created. God created. God created. God created. God blessed. God blessed. God blessed. God blessed. And there was evening and there was morning and there was evening and there was morning. And there was evening, and there was morning, and there was evening, and there was morning, and on we go. Do you get it? Creation reveals the redemptive power of God's Word. Huh. Look at what was before there was light. Look in your mind's eye right now, or at the text, actually. Imagine and look at the text. What was before there was light? What was before there was earth? What was before there was vegetation? What was before there was sun, moon, stars? What was before there was fish? What was before there was livestock? What was before there was, uh, there was wildlife? What was before there was man? What was there before there was woman? What was there before? We could keep going. It says there in the text, formless, empty, Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. He redeems. He took and he takes what is formless and makes something beautiful. Did he not? Don't you see it there in Genesis 1? He takes what is empty and he fills it with his glory and his majesty, giving it meaning and purpose. Right? He takes the, the unknown void of darkness and he sends his light to define the day and the night. Creation reveals redemption. God takes the chaos and brings order. And he does it in creation and he can do it and he intends to do it in our lives. That he can take the chaos of your life and bring order. How does he do it? But by Christ. Right? God's creation reveals to us his redemptive power. Creation reveals redemption. Here we have a picture of what God would do and has done with his people. Right there, even as Moses writes, when their worlds were falling apart and they were enslaved in Egypt, think of it, God would redeem them from the dark chaos, that enslavement of that enslavement, redeem them from that to the light and blessings of the promised land. Creation 
reveals redemption. Creation reveals redemption. Creative, redemptive power of God's word. It's so powerfully put on display here. Majestic, powerful God. He speaks this created world into existence. The molecular complexities of this created world spoken into existence, created, bera, a Hebrew word only used in Scripture referring to God. Man never creates, never. Man never creates. We don't see that. Our complex world with its complex God, man makes, we see that wording used in Scripture. But only this is used of God. It's only God. They're very careful about that. The Hebrew Old Testament, very careful. Only God creates. Our complex world with its complex design spoken into existence by our all-powerful God. He is the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. Genesis 1 it reveals to us the creative, redemptive power of God's Word. And we don't doubt, as we read by faith, we don't doubt that God can and does give life to, de- to the dead, right? And, and I think as we read this, it actually helps us come to understand and believe the gospel. Because that is what is He is doing in the gospel. <laughs> we see it. If you look at Isaiah, turn to Isaiah 55. Um, In Isaiah 55, let's turn there. In Isaiah 55, God draws a direct line from His power in creation, from the effectiveness of His Word over creation, to the effectiveness of His Word over our hearts and lives, and I would say even over this church. We see it there in verse 10 and 11. He says, For just as rain and snow fall from heaven, and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout. See, He's pointing to His creation account and how His creation works, and then He's, he's calling and He's saying something about if we look back to the creation account, we see how did He do it? By His Word, okay? And then He says something there, In verse 11, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but I will accomplish, it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. When his word goes out, you see, we, we need to hear that this morning, that when his word goes out, it produces life, and that ought to inspire us and strengthen us in our desire to set ourselves under the creative word of God, the created, redemptive, powerful Word of God. Genesis 1, without a doubt, puts the power of God's Word on display, (laughs) just as Isaiah 55 does there. The same Word of God that is creating in Genesis 1, did you know this, is the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14. John tells us in the first chapter of his gospel, even, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. (laughs) The creative word of God that spoke this universe into existence is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who became flesh and blood to redeem and save. As his image bears, we failed, and we'll talk more about that when we get into chapter 3. But as his image bears, we failed to rule as we were created. We failed to exercise the dominion that we were given. And we needed one to redeem and save. And that one is Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. And the Word made flesh made the universe in Genesis 1. And after he was finished creating, we see something that I want to point out before we close this down today. And we see it in Genesis 2, verse 2. That after he was finished creating, go ahead and turn there to Genesis 2, verse 2. After he was finished creating, he rested. It says, on the seventh day, God completed his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. For on it he rested from all his work of creation. God rested. What do you think of that? What do you know about God Was God, when he rested, uh, was he tired? No. Did he need a a foot massage from all that work? No. Right? Did the work wear him out? No. No, his rest is a a kickback and admire. Right? It's a celebration. It's a celebration of completion. And you think, you and I do this, don't we? right? I had a project. I started in March, and I'm still not finished with it, but I got a bit done to where after I finished it, I think that could probably last me another six months because I got far enough, right, where I could sit back and just admire what's been accomplished up to this point. Now, my wife doesn't like hearing that, She wants it to be all the way completed, right? But we do this. We do this. We we look at at the things that that we have done, and and we stand back when we make something. We stand back as a a celebration. And and that is what we see here, that this rest that God takes is a, a celebration of completion. And more could be said. It's very interesting even when you look at the Hebrew of those three passages and it talks about this, the completion and the emphasis of rest and this, the Sabbath rest. So I want to say something about that. And I turn to Matthew eleven twenty eight to say it. Because it seems the, the order switches for us. See, we typically work, then rest. Right, But Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This rest, right? we must first find it in Christ. It's in Christ that we find our Sabbath rest. And it's from this place of rest that we begin our work. But we must first believe in Christ and put our faith and hope in Christ and enter into Christ. 
And some will not obey the gospel. Some will not enter that rest as a result of that. But those in here today, I would encourage you today, right? If you hear his voice, do not harden his heart, your heart, but enter, your, enter the rest, right? Enter the rest that is provided for you by God in Christ. As we process and consider, to consider Genesis chapter 1, and we think of the call on our lives, right? Even as those who have entered the rest, let us all remember, right, that we want to work out of this place, out of this place of rest, right? With that thought, we'll go ahead and close, and I'll let Quint play a song here, and we'll close with one more thought after that song's finished. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Our time here feels short this morning to try to unpack this chapter and all that is here. We thank you so much for your word. And as we think about you know, the redemptive power of your word and how you became flesh and dwelt among us, God, may we enter this rest that you have provided. For us, and may we learn how to work out of that rest. And God, we, we turn to Genesis 1 this morning, and we see just how, how powerful you are, how purposeful you are. And we want to submit ourselves to you. We want to submit ourselves this morning to that power and to that purpose that you might uh, accomplish your will through us, that we would submit ourselves to you so that you could have your way with us as individuals, but also so that you could have your way with us as your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.